This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, May 22nd, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Our brains don't just help us survive, they help us advance economically and socially. And yet we don't understand our own motives as well as we would like to believe. In Robin Hansen's book, The Elephant in the Brain, he discusses the ways in which our primate brains don't just get the better of us, but also change key institutions that mediate our lives. In most areas of human behavior, including school and medicine and conversation and research and politics, we have a story we tell you about and tell anybody about what we're doing in that area, why we're there. We go to school to learn the material. We go to the doctor to get healthy. We get involved in politics to make the world better. These are our standard stories, and we believe them, and most policy analysis takes them at their word, assumes that these stories are right. And the theme of our book with myself and Kevin Simler, the elephant in the brain, is that most of these stories are wrong, at least to a large degree. Uh, you, the excuse that your dog ate your homework only works because sometimes your dog really does eat your homework, but it's an excuse because mostly it's not true. <laughs> Similarly, even though sometimes we go to the doctor to get well or go to school to learn the material, uh, it's true a lot less than we admit. And so our book is about what are our real motives? That is the motives we'd less like to admit that, that explain a larger fraction of our behavior than we'd like to admit. So when you talk about motives, uh, do you mean motives that we are aware of ourselves? We're talking about the explanation for our behavior, the, the thing that makes sense of a lot of the details. Uh, sometimes that's something we're conscious of. Uh, at least many people are. And other times we're less conscious of it. And sometimes we're conscious of it but still don't want to admit it in public. Uh, so, like Adam Smith says, uh, we don't just want to be loved, we want to be lovely. <laughs> we want to be deservedly loved, the sort of person who should be loved because we are lovely. Right. And we want to, we want, is, it, is this all vanity? A lot of our motives are relatively selfish, and that's a lot of the reason we hide them is we'd rather not admit to such selfish motives. They're completely reasonable selfish motives, the sort of motives that a social creature like ourselves should have but they're still relatively selfish. A lot of them are about showing off or trying to show that we're loyal, but we're also trying to show that we're smart and conscientious and conformist even. Now, is a lot of this driven by just the strictures of social convention? That is where we, we need to appear to be doing things a certain way, uh, but that might be perceived uh, negatively if we just up and admitted to everyone, including ourselves, that this is why we're doing what we're doing. Humans are different from other primates uh, to a large degree because we have social norms. Uh, we don't just you know, have things we like to do or things we usually do. We have rules about what you're supposed to do or not supposed to do. And people are supposed to watch your behavior. And if they see you deviate from these rules, they're supposed to call people's attention to it, coordinate with other people, and punish you if necessary to make it stop. That's our human heritage, and that's a lot of the way our brains were built was to manage this. We're constantly, when we're looking at what we're doing in the world, we're telling ourselves a little story about why we were doing each thing. Because a lot of these norms are in terms of motives. If I hit you accidentally, that's okay. If I hit you on purpose, it's not. And so we want to be able to tell a story about why our motives were great, good motives about everything we're doing. And we're more eager to have a good story about our motives than we are to know what our actual motives were. We're more like the press secretary than the president. We don't actually make the decisions. Uh, we make a story about why that was a good decision. So it, where does this get us in trouble? 
as individuals, where do we where do we find ourselves making these kinds of decisions and like uh, either feeling bad about it or uh, after the fact saying, why did I why was I doing it that well, way? Why did I do that? We're built to be ignorant for a reason because it's mostly in our, in, our interest to be ignorant. Mostly we, you know, tell a good story about what we're doing and we believe that good story and that helps us present ourselves to other people. And mostly that's in our personal interest. Where it goes the most wrong is in policy analysis. When policy analysts start to believe these stories, then it all goes to hell. <laughs> so uh, many people know that they're going to school really to uh, get credentials and to impress employers. But when they talk about it in a graduation speech or in a letter of application, they talk about learning the material and how fascinating it all is because that's the thing you're supposed to say. But then when people go to do research to study education, they tend to believe that story. And then they start to analyze education as if it was for learning the material. And they try to design educational institutions that will help us better learn the material, at which point people yawn and look the other way and aren't very interested because at some level they know that's not really why they're there. Where have we seen this breakdown, the, 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 the system of uh, us not necessarily lying to ourselves, but uh, outwardly presenting something that isn't the case? Where has that just broken down? Where have you seen social norms actually change because of, as a, of a breakdown in that way? I think we're pretty robust. So we mostly function okay at the individual level, uh, saying one thing about our motives and really having a different motives. We're built to do that. We, we're good at it. So we don't really break down. Where things break down is at the larger policy social level. So individually, we mostly go to the doctor and help each other go to the doctor that, to show that we care about each other and to let other people show them that they care about us, which works fine individually. But then we talk about it as if we're trying to get each other healthy and if it was all about health. And we talk about it as if medicine was a wonderful thing. And then at the social level, when we talk about policy, we think medicine is a wonderful thing. Therefore, we should subsidize it. We should have a lot more of it. And so we go wrong. <laughs> We have too much medicine as it is just because we're trying to show each other that we care. And then when we talk policy, we go overboard and, and make it worse. So in policy analysis specifically, we see people talking about specific uh, commodities or goods or services as if they are goods in and of themselves and there's no deeper analysis because nobody else believes that any deeper analysis is necessary? Well, they might even know that the deeper analysis is necessary, but they know that's the sort of thing you're supposed to say in public. <laughs> so we know the sort of thing you're supposed to say about school. School is great because you learn useful skills and, and knowledge, and then that helps the world when you go out and have a job. That's the thing you're supposed to say. And most people who've been to school know that's not entirely true, <laughs> but they still know that's the thing you're supposed to say. And then when people go study policy for education, they end up talking about education as if that was the main point of education. And then they go wrong introducing policy reforms and subsidies that are based on that assumption. Is there a laundry list of these specific things that that we might all be better off if we just admitted were true or false and that our behaviors ought to be – ought to alter accordingly? Like there seems to be some sort of social efficiency gain that that might be had if we just fundamentally admitted several things about life. Well, we might – collectively have an advantage if we could just be honest and admit things. But individually, we'd be punished, which is why it doesn't happen. <laughs> Any one of us who tries to be more honest and, and forthright about these things uh, ends up looking like they're a cynic and puncturing holes in other people's uh, claims, and they get punished for that. 
So as long as you're not one of the first uh, few hundred or few thousand people making this admission in public, you're okay. If there's enough of a snowball, then yes, maybe people eventually can all admit it together. But um, I wouldn't be the first. But uh, going back to the, this idea of, of you know, uh, not being the first guy, um, are, have we seen an admission that was broadly accepted publicly? And they said, yeah, well, this is true or this is false. And now we need to uh, arrange our affairs around this new fact that we've all discovered. Sometimes communities of experts can admit these things within that community, and then they could make a more sensible choice. But when it gets to talking to the wider public, they usually switch and go to the usual thing you're supposed to say. So where do, where, what areas of policy do we most see people failing to make these kinds of uh, important admissions about the truth of the world? It's whenever uh, people wax philosophic or idealistic about how great something is. <laughs> it's most likely to be wrong. So education, education, medicine, medicine. You say now medicine. I, I might argue with you, but I have I haven't studied it specifically. But I can say, uh, with some experience, that uh, education is oversold. Right, and uh, other things that we you know are likely to celebrate and say great things about those tend to be oversold as well. Um, you know, even you know uh, patriotism, uh, dedication. Uh, research even, uh, people, when they celebrate things, you know, over the top, they tend to uh, make presumptions about what things are for and um, things go wrong. But our, our book is primarily about trying to just make clear the point that our motives are not what they think they are. W you know, we only have one book's worth of space and it's hard enough to really convince you of this. We, we, the first third is an abstract discussion of why in principle, it might be true that we'd be wrong about our motives, but then the last two-thirds of the book are going through 10 different areas, trying to show you area by area what the motive you think you have is and what the more plausible motive is. That's the, really the only way to convince you that your motives are quite often different than what you think is to, is to lay it out in that level of detail. And once we do that, we don't really have space to solve all the world's problems after that. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give an example where most people would say, aha, yes, I do that, and either I never understood why or I hate the fact that I have to lie about this? Well, uh, body language comes to mind as a straightforward example that one can convince people of if you'll show them the right videos. <laughs> so um, when if you ask people why you hold your posture that way, why your shoulders outside while you're looking to the side, you know, people will just say, well, I'm more comfortable that way or something. They'll just make a comfort explanation. But it turns out that actors, uh, they have to watch people's body language and learn how to uh, communicate the sort of things that we usually communicate with our body language that we aren't aware of. One of those is flirting, of course. We often flirt with body language, uh, even though we would deny that we're flirting because we're not supposed to be flirting. And we also use body language to communicate status. So when two people are talking next to each other, they'll usually adjust their body and the tone of their voice and the rhythm of their voice as well to acknowledge a relative status between the two of them. Usually one of them is higher status than the other. And this is something people usually wouldn't be willing to admit. They would usually say, no, 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 this is just my friend. We're the same. We have equal status. Uh, but if you look at their body language, it's just not true. And this is a surprising claim that you might not believe if I just tell you but actors have to learn this so that they can be realistic on stage. And so most actors know this. 
And I could convince you too if I could just show you the right videos of people sitting there talking to each other and you could measure their actual reactions. Is this a problem of just the fact that most of us don't have a lot of expertise in, in specific areas? Well, uh, this is an ignorance. And so there's a lot of theories we can offer to explain ignorance. We can say, hey, hey, you know, your, your time is valuable, you're distracted, you just can't be bothered to learn this. But you'll notice that we spend years and years teaching people how to write <laughs> and how to choose their words. And we spend almost no time teaching them about body language. Nevertheless, they're really quite good at it. And, and, and they seem quite ignorant when you ask them. So it just seems implausible to say they must not have gotten around to thinking about their body language. <laughs> seems more plausible to say they don't really wanna know. Robin Hansen is author of several books, the latest of which is The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.